0: The scripture reading this morning comes from comes from Romans chapter 6 verses 1 to 10. Romans 6 1 to 10. And the word of God says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We die to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Therefore, anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died... He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God.
1: Before taking a closer look at these great paragraphs, let me just say I'm glad to have our choir back. Um, It is... I I won't actually uh, ask for you to respond to this quiz question. I wonder if you know who in the Bible is to be thanked for choral music as a part of the corporate worship of God's people. Uh, The answer would be King David. Uh, The Old Testament law, with all of its rituals and festivals and sacrifices, says nothing about choirs. It was David... He said, We need a choir. (laughs) And so we can thank him, and we thank Dean and his musicians for blessing us this morning. Redeeming love has been my theme. It's the theme of Romans 5 through 8, the great four chapters of Paul's greatest letter that will occupy our attention for the next few months as they have for the last few weeks. Today, looking at these first couple paragraphs of chapter 6. If you have um, been to many funerals here at Christ Community Church over the past couple decades, you may have heard me share this story. Uh, During a war between Britain and France centuries ago, men were conscripted into the French army by a kind of a lottery system. Somebody's name came up, he had to go into battle. And on one occasion, the authorities came to a certain man and told him that he was among those who um, had to serve, and uh, he refused to go, saying, I was shot and killed two years ago. Well, at first, they questioned his sanity, but he, um, he insisted that this was indeed the case and that the military records would show that he had been killed in action. How can that be? They said, you're, you're here today. And he explained that his name had um, come up a couple of years earlier. And that a friend of the family said, look, you've got a wife, you've got children to raise, I'm single and unattached, and why don't you just let me go in your place? And that's what happened, and that friend had been shot and killed in battle. Well, this situation was so unusual that the local authorities took it all the way to Napoleon, who, when he had heard and investigated, found that this was indeed the case, said, um, the country has no claim on this man anymore. He was free. He died in the person of another. Which I think the Apostle Paul might say is not a bad illustration of justification in Romans chapter 5 and sanctification in Romans chapter 6. Justification, which has been the theme of the chapter we've been in for a few weeks, is that great act of God in which he declares unworthy, guilty sinners in the clear in heaven's court because somebody has taken the penalty for their sins, and there's no double jeopardy in God's system of justice. We're free. We died in the person of another. Sanctification is that process of God. It's not a one-time act like justification, but a lifelong process in which somebody else's death on our behalf has huge significance for the way we live. And if we grasp what Paul is saying in the first part of Romans 6, we might feel something like that Frenchman may have felt. Thank God I'm dead. (laughs) Let's look more closely at Romans 6 and see what Paul means. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? For the first few chapters, including chapter 5, the apostle has been talking about the amazing grace of God, and now he anticipates a possible misunderstanding. People who have been listening to him talk about God's grace might reason this way. If my relationship to God depends completely on his grace and not on anything that I do, well then I may as well do what I feel like doing. I guess it doesn't matter what I do. I may as well sin if I feel like it. In fact, Paul had said in the 20th verse of the previous chapter that the more sin increases, the more grace increases. And somebody might put it this way. I like to sin. God likes to forgive. What a neat arrangement. That's twisted logic, Paul says here. If you talk that way you don't really understand the grace of God. Because as he says in his letter to Titus, chapter 2, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live upright, godly, self-controlled lives. Why, Paul says, if you think that grace is a license to sin, you're even forgetting what your baptism represented. Now, as an aside, let me point out that Paul assumes that all these people who read his letter or heard it read aloud had been baptized. He was writing to Christians, and in the first century, there was no such phenomenon as unbaptized Christians. It was uh, assumed that if you were a Christ follower, you had obeyed his first commandment and had been baptized. But now, uh, Paul doesn't camp on that claim. He just... Um, makes a point about what baptism represented. So I'll back up and read verse 1 again, but the following verses as well. What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. <laughs> we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glorious power of the Father, is probably a better way to put it, we too may live a new life. What he's saying is don't you remember what that gospel drama we call baptism represented? When you were put down under the water, it was a picture of Christ being buried. And when you were brought back up out of the water, it was a picture of Christ being raised. But more than that, when you were put down under the water, it was a picture of your old self, your old sin-loving, alienated from God's self, being buried. And what comes up out of the water is a new person. Somebody with a new orientation toward pleasing God, living for God's Son. A new life, a new world, a new identity, new life in Christ. Again, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I just wonder how many of you may have changed jobs in the last 10 years. Maybe you, um, maybe you disliked your former employer and um, glad to get out. Imagine that a couple of weeks after you quit, he calls and says, I need you to work on Saturday. And you remind him that he no longer employs you. In fact, you have plans for Saturday. He tries to argue, but you're firm. No, I, I have a new job, a new boss. A few days later, he calls again, and he says he wants you to work the late shift Thursday. And you, you say, you, you really don't get it, do you? And maybe if you'd had your quiet time from Romans 6 that morning, you would even use its language of death to the old and say, listen, Joe, as far as you're concerned, I'm dead. (laughs) That chapter of my life is over. Don't call me again. And after that, if you check the caller ID and it's Joe, you don't answer. When lust calls don't pick up the phone. When anger calls, don't answer. When sin tries to assert its authority over you, remind yourself of what Paul says and say, thank God I'm dead. Uh, I'm afraid that many Christians don't grasp this. Many realize that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross and are expecting to go to heaven when they die as a result of his sacrifice, but don't realize what a difference his sacrificial death makes in the way we live here and now. We sang earlier in the service, he breaks the power of canceled sin. You know what that means? (laughs) Canceled sin is sin that is paid for. It was canceled on Calvary. But thank God that's not all there is to salvation, the remission of our penalty, the canceling of the condemnation that was hanging over our heads. He, Christ, breaks the power that that canceled sin still tries to exert in our lives when it calls and says, I want you to work for me again on Thursday. He breaks the power of sin. In 2004, police were shocked at what they found in a house in Ontario. They were responding to a call from relatives and neighbors and entered this ramshackle house where they found two teenage boys locked in cages. Their biological aunt had adopted them years ago, and now, ages 14 and 15, they continued to suffer at the hands of their adoptive parents. The officials learned that the boys did go to school during the day, but when they came home, they were sent back to their cages. On weekends and holidays, they were allowed to come downstairs for a bowl of cereal in the morning, but Back to the cages, wearing diapers, where they would spend the rest of the day. This adoptive mother was obviously off her nut. An abusive, domineering woman whose submissive um, handyman husband would beat the boys whenever she told them to do so. Well, the detectives unlocked the cages, let the boys out, and said, you'll never be locked up again. And they said, really? Tell some Christians what Paul says in Romans 6, that you have been released from the tyranny of sin. Really? Really? Yeah, really. Verse 5, if we've been... United with Christ in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Now notice the future tense here. Paul repeats this in verse 8, and he uses the future tense because there is an already-not-yet quality to the Christian's experience. Thanks to God's son dying and being raised again on your behalf and mine, we are more alive than ever, but there's even more and better coming. We will be united with him in his resurrection, which means that one day, once and for all, we will be forever beyond sin's reach. Till then, sin still has your number. It still phones. It still beckons sometimes even swaggers, as if you still lived under its authority. But you don't have to answer. 4, verse 6 says, we know that our old self, the one that went in the water, was crucified with Christ so that The body of sin, this is a difficult expression that translators wrestle with. The 2011 version of the NIV says, the body ruled by sin may be done away with. Really? Yeah, yeah, really. Trust it. A, A woman, a Christian, Confronted with this truth, said, De- Dead to sin? I, I don't know. I don't think I've actually died to sin. I did feel kind of faint once. No, no, dead, dead. Thank God you're dead to sin. And, and by the way, he doesn't mean that there's something inherently sinful about our human bodies, which were created by God and he pronounced them good back in the uh, opening chapters of Genesis. It just means that sometimes. Sin gets a hold of our body, makes an instrument of our body, tends to become, in a sense, embodied and almost like a a personalized power over us. But we know that that old self was crucified with him so that this body ruled by sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Now, a minute ago, I said that a lot of Christians don't, don't know this truth, that we have died to sin. Others know it, but kind of overinterpret it and say something that I don't think Paul means and I don't think the Bible teaches anywhere. The misleading teaching goes something like this A corpse doesn't feel anything or sense anything. And so the teaching goes that a Christian who understands what Paul says in Romans 6 is insensitive to the allure of sin. We don't, even, we don't even feel tempted. Because corpses don't feel anything. Sounds good. Sounds like a reasonable inference, a good way to take Paul's imagery of death seriously But listen, Christian experience shows that that is not what Paul means. In New Jersey, there was a godly pastor who was approaching retirement years. He was the kind of man that everybody, including other pastors in our state, looked up to as what a great man of God. I wonder if he even sins anymore. And he said in a sermon, and he was probably in his 70s at the time, I've been a Christian for 50 years, a pastor for most of those years. Let me tell you that the battle with temptation rages as fiercely today as ever. Now, lest that dishearten anybody, lest you think, well, what hope is there for me? if even a godly pastor can battle for decades and still feel like the battle is just as fierce as ever, the reality is that as you grow in the Christian life, as God's Spirit progressively sanctifies you, makes you more like Jesus, you do experience victory over some temptations. You do win some skirmishes. But then holier and more Christ-like than you were yesteryear, you start to notice things in your life that you didn't even know were sinful. You didn't even know you needed to work on that. And so the battle moves to new ground. And by God's grace and the help of His Spirit, you get some more victories, and then He shows you other areas in which you are still not like the Lord Jesus. And the battle continues until the day You meet him face to face. That's what this pastor was saying. So the text is not guaranteeing that, well, if only you would just get this into your head once, Romans 6, then you could be like a corpse and never again feel the allure of sin. Well, what what does it mean to say that we have died to sin? Well, remember the Frenchman? I'm dead, he said, you can't tell me what to do. That's what we say to sin. Back in the 1950s, a boy joined the sixth grade class in a South Carolina school. He was, uh, as his teacher explained to his fellow students, a displaced person. In the 1950s, Poland was still under Soviet domination. He had managed to get to this free land, but he had some adjusting to do, and one of his problems was that he stole food. His adoptive parents would send him to school with a a full lunchbox, but he would still steal food from other kids. And the teacher would tell him, this is wrong, you you, you can't do this, but it didn't do any good until finally the teacher sat him down, took him by the shoulders, and said, look at me. You don't need to steal food. This is America. There is enough here. I promise you, you'll never be hungry again. And then she could see it in his eyes that, that that it dawned on him. He wasn't in Poland anymore. He was living in a whole new world. And that, and that worked. His behavior changed because it seemed to him now so out of step with the new world that he was living in. And, and I think that Paul is saying something like that. A new world requires a new you. This boy could still steal And you can still sin. It's not literally impossible, but it's utterly out of character with who you are and whose you are. Inconsistent with new life in Christ, with the new realm, the new you. I think this analogy of living in a new country is helpful. And so did Eugene Peterson when he paraphrased Romans 6 I'm going to take the time to read how he renders these paragraphs. He says in verse 1 of chapter 6 So, what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep forgiving? I should hope not. <laughs> if we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize that we packed up and left there for good? That's what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered a new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we're lowered into the water, it's like the burial of Jesus. When we're raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in this new grace-sovereign country. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a decisive end to that sin-miserable life, no longer at sin's beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him. But alive, he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language That means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You're dead to sin, alive to God. That's verses 1 to 10. Now in a few weeks, Lord willing, we're going to come back to verses 11 and following, but I may as well give you how Peterson puts it. This means that you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full time into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. Don't answer sin's phone calls. Thank God you're dead. This is hugely important. Hugely important. Grasping this truth can make a magnificent difference in the way you live your new life in Christ. You need other truths too. This isn't everything that the Bible has to say about combating temptation and growing in Christ-likeness. We need the verses on discipline and about um, vigilance and the power of the Holy Spirit and accountability to others in the body and, and, and all of that. We need the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible. But for sure, we need Romans 6 and this truth about this decisive change in our identity. When sin comes around, tries to intimidate you, tell you what you've got to do, it helps enormously to be able to say, I was shot and killed two two years ago. (laughs) Or however many years ago it was that you were buried with Christ in baptism. And if you mess up, anybody, now I won't ask you to raise your hand again. Anybody here mess up once in a while? If you do, You don't have to say, well, I guess I'm a slave to sin after all. You say, I went back to work for the old boss one Saturday. And no need to repeat that blunder. Next time you're tempted, probably be today. Try saying, I don't have any obligation to the old regime anymore. I'm not slave to that master anymore. I'm not a citizen of Satan's kingdom anymore. I don't have any ties to that old era anymore.
0: I don't live in that
1: old house anymore. I'm not the person that I once was anymore. The old me and all those old relationships are dead. and Thank God I'm dead. Let's pray, and I'm going to use the words of someone else who reflected on these great truths for my prayer. Oh God, we, your church, are losing our radical edge because we have forgotten this aspect of the gospel. Our discipleship is so flimsy, so unconvincing because we do not understand this basic doctrine of death to sin followed by new life in union with our crucified, buried, and risen Lord. We do not see our conversion to Christ as a death to our old life. We see it as a pleasant ornament on our old life, a little religion added in. We see conversion as a drop of oil to keep the gears of our pagan lives running smoothly. And when, in fact, conversion demands that the gears come to a stop. And begin turning in the opposite direction. We condescend to include you in our unexamined lives rather than die to those old lives and start all over again with you from scratch. Oh God, we urgently need to understand that you are what you are teaching us here. We need to rediscover what it means to live in union with Christ. We need to see that holiness is not legalism. Grace is not cheap. Oh, God, spread this message throughout your church today. Let it reach our ears and our hearts, creating within us a yearning for renewal and holiness consistent with the gospel. And, oh, God, let me live in sweet, felt union with my Lord, drawing new life from him, moment by moment, In his holy name, amen.